eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. On this episode, uh, two segments, three guests, uh, three fantastic guests. We start off with both Lisa Byington and Kate Scott. Lisa Byington is the new television voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. Kate Scott is the new television voice of the Philadelphia 76ers. They are the first female full-time television play-by-play announcers in the NBA and the first to do it for a major men's professional sports team uh, on, the, on the television end. So, um, I mean, pretty just uh, sort of incredible pioneering you have probably heard both before in some form uh lisa called men's and women's soccer play-by-play for nbc at the uh the recent tokyo olympics she's done women's world cup for fox she's been a play-by-play voice and a sideline reporter on the ncaa men's basketball tournament for cbs and turner she was the first female play-by-play broadcaster for a big 10 network college football game and, uh, you know, she's worked for Fox and Big Ten Network, CBS, Turner, Pac-12 Network, uh, called some Bulls games as well. Kate Scott was the first woman to call a Golden State Warriors game, first woman to call a NFL game on the radio, first to call a football game for the Pac-12 Networks. She, um, like Lisa, was uh, calling games for, um, or I should say calling the Olympics for NBC, making her Olympic broadcasting debut as one of the play-by-play voices of men's and women's basketball for the Tokyo Olympics. You've heard her a lot, obviously, on the Pac-12. If you're a Bay Area person, you've heard her on the radio. She's also currently the play-by-play voice of Learfield's College Football Saturday Night. That's a national syndicated game of the week available on 110 radio stations, uh, YouTube, Facebook, across the country. She works with Mike Golick Sr., who has been a guest on this podcast as well. They are followed by Eli Saslow, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter. He has a new book out that publishes this week, Voices from the Pandemic, 
Americans Tell Their Stories of Crisis, Courage, and Resilience. It's an expanded version of the oral history project Eli did last year for the Washington Post. And uh, these are just remarkable stories of uh, sort of everyday Americans and how they have dealt with, how they have struggled with, and how they have processed COVID-19. Some just very poignant, also heartbreaking stuff. Uh, Eli is a phenomenal reporter, and um, and he talks about just the process of uh, of going about and doing that very important project. Lisa Byington and Kate Scott to start, followed by Eli Saslow, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, so we'll make this intro a little shorter. Lisa Byington is the new television voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. Kate Scott is the new television voice of the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, not only does that make them the first female full-time TV play-by-play announcers in the NBA, depending on sort of how, if you want to sort of uh, categorize stuff, they're, they're the first full-time women to be the play-by-play announcers of a major men's professional sports team. I, I realize, you know, when we start classifying like that, it sort of depends on what your major sport is or not. Regardless, these are really significant pioneers. Um, uh, in an industry which has, uh, w- which they are the first to do what they do, which is really exciting. And I'm pleased to be joined by Lisa Byington and Kate Scott, both joining me today from two different cities uh, on a Sunday. Thank you guys. I mean, this, you know, Kate, you seemingly drove across the country and now you're coming on this podcast. I mean, no offense, you could really, you could really get a lot more visibility than this, but thank you for coming on regardless. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, I could really use I think a shower and a shave is what I should probably right. say right now. But uh, happy to had, well, happy to be with you both. Okay. You're in, you're in good shape here. Um, and Lisa, thank you for coming on. And I'm going to uh, I'm going to start with you. Um, can you? And this will be the same question for you, Kate, as well. Lisa, can you as detailed as you want? Can you take me through the process of how this job came to be? Well, I, I think it was just a, a decision of. First of all, you know, my, my agent came to me and said, are you interested in this? And, you know, there were, there were other NBA jobs, the 76ers job being one of them that opened up. And um, we only looked at the Bucks job because I felt like it was something that matched me. And it's nothing against any other job out there. And, and Kate's nodding her head. And, and I, think, I think she understands and, and people understand a fit, right? And so I've always been a Midwest person. Uh, everyone in my family is in the Midwest and some state in the Midwest. So when I was talking to my agent, I think pursuing the Bucks job made the most sense for me. Um, you know, they, they, uh, I don't know if you heard Richard, but they went pretty deep in the playoffs. So we had to wait a little bit. Um, obviously uh, winning a championship was more important than finding out who their announcer was going to be and doing interviews. So the application, quote unquote, application process for that was pushed back a little bit because of the playoffs. And, and I think like anything, you know, you, you put your name in, uh, you, you see how they kind of whittled down to the, the finalists and the different candidates. Um, you know, they had asked to see different kinds of work, did a Zoom interview, because that's what we do in 2021 and uh, became a finalist. And then actually I was doing a college football game when I found out the news and was actually wearing a, a green blazer. And <laughs> so I, I joke that, you know, green is my lucky color now. And that's actually how my agent let me know. He texted me and he said, it's, it's a good thing that you're wearing green tonight. Congratulations. Uh, that's awesome. What a great story. All right, Kate, same uh, question for you. 
Uh, well, I want to know also, I'm going to ask Lisa questions too, because we were just in Stanford just a, a couple of months together. Did you know at that point, Lisa, because I'm trying to, all the days have blended together at this point, but when were we in Stanford, late July, early August? So were you keeping the secret then? Well, they were still playing in the NBA finals when we were in Stanford, you right. know? So, um, so the process is, is just beginning then. Okay. And, you know, I mean, they just won the championship when we were covering, you know, she's, she's referencing Stanford. We were in the Olympics, right. Covering, uh, various different sports and stuff. So, so yeah, it's, uh, so it's the NBA final. I mean, I remember sitting in Stanford, Connecticut in my hotel covering the Olympics, Kate, and watching the NBA finals and, <laughs> and watching Giannis hoist the trophy and, um, not knowing if this would, you know, come to fruition, but, yeah. um, but there was, you know, there was a lot of hope and a lot of p- possibilities at that time. That's so awesome. What about you, Kate? Same, same question is, uh, take me through the process of how this came to be. Oh, I'm so happy for Lisa. Uh, and I'm so happy that we finally met in person because we supported each other over social media and over text and right. Talking for a number of years now with the football we've been calling and stuff. So I just think it was so perfectly timed that we got to meet in Stanford and now this is happening. Okay. I'll finally answer your question, Richard. Um, so, uh, similar to what Lisa said, um, I had been in touch actually with Mark Zuma for a couple of years, who is the amazing human being that I'm replacing in Philadelphia. Um, and I saw that he retired and it shocked me. I had no idea that he was going to be hanging it up. And I remember saying aloud, uh, man, whoever tries to follow zoo is a freaking idiot. And, uh, a couple of days later, my agents called and said, Hey, Kate, we think you should apply for this job. Um, so I said, okay, why not? You know, I would absolutely love to be the voice of an NBA team, especially a team like the Philadelphia 76ers, like Lisa said, you know, I've always been a California girl, which doesn't make sense probably to a lot of Philadelphians right now. But I think there's a a small difference between those of us who grew up on the coast, right? Um, So I'd always, like I said in my quote that uh, was released with the announcement last week, I I wanted to be Allen Iverson when I was a little girl in my driveway because he was too short and too small and didn't belong. And I related to a lot of that not belonging growing up as a girl in sports who was always playing with the boys. Anyway, um, so I had my first Zoom interview uh, just before I left for the Olympics. And I, I think it was almost hours before I was leaving for um, my flight. <laughs> it was, okay, I think I have this two-hour period. Yeah, let's do it. Um, and then I was lucky to get to call hoops um, at the Olympics. So they had a lot of time to listen to me. Uh, I didn't hear from them when I got back. So I figured that they had moved on in the process and, and gone with some different folks as I was prepping for the start of college football season, just like Lisa. Uh, and then uh, right before I was getting set to go for my first game, they said uh, they called on a Monday and said, hey, Kate, can you fly out to Philadelphia on Thursday and audition for us? Um, and like we always do, made it work, flew out, um, got in late on a Wednesday night. Really early the next morning, went over to NBC Sports Philadelphia, uh, went in studio. Um, you know, we called a, a we did a, an open for a game that happened last year. I'm sure you did the same thing, Lisa. Um, and then we called different parts of the game because they did wanted to see how I would react to different situations. Uh, and then said, OK, that's a wrap. Um, and then they proceeded to ask me if I wanted to go to lunch before my flight left. So I started to think hmm, they might be more interested in me than I thought. Um, and then I think the next week as I was boarding a flight, I'm trying to remember if it was uh, 
Starkville, it was one of the college towns, but I was in line, like ready to touch my phone to go on the plane. And I saw it was um, uh, one of the folks from NBC Sports Philadelphia. So I stepped out of line and, and they said, you know, we want to just say congratulations before we call your agent. We'd love for you to be the, the new voice of the Philadelphia 76ers. And I said some words I can't repeat here and was very excited and then <laughs> got on the plane and tried not to scream, even though I wanted to. Yeah. By the way, Kate, you're allowed to curse on this podcast. No problem. <laughs> okay. with quote. Um, Lisa, did you um, did you have any kind of uh, of a similar like audition process where they they wanted you to do specific things from like uh, within a game? You know, you have a lot of tape that they could sort of hear you do stuff. So you know, maybe that's different for for you as opposed to Kate. But I wonder if the Bucks at all asked you to if they put you in any kind of game situations where they wanted to hear just your sound when calling the game. No, not an in-person audition. Uh, they did follow up and say, hey, give, give us kind of a, a 10, 11 minutes of unedited of your, of your best work. So I actually, I asked them, because I've done some bull stuff for um, Chicago. And so I asked them, did you want it to be NBA specific or, you know, can I just pick anything? And so they said, we want your best. And, and so I was thinking best recent so I pulled um, 10 minutes of an NCAA tournament that I did with Steve Smith, and it was Oral Roberts in Florida. It was that upset that I called uh, with Oral Roberts getting to the Sweet 16, and I, I literally just – it was easy. I, I started like 10 minutes prior to the end of it <laughs> and just let it roll. I listened to it for again to make sure I was comfortable with it, um, and that's what I sent. And so that was my quote-unquote audition. Lisa, I'm going to stick with you. Um, what are the – what are the immediate challenges of this job or perhaps what are the specific challenges of this job? You know, I, I think it's a better question to ask that Richard after I've done the job, you know, because there's so much unknown and I'm not trying to skirt the question, but for instance, we just did a, a ton of like zooms and a seminar for the NBA. And one of my questions that I've reached out and I'm sure Kate's a similar way. One of the questions I've asked to play by plays who've done it, whether it's TV or radio and the NBA is what are your research tools? What are the podcasts you listen to? Where do you go to get your stats and, and extra research where you get that one cool nugget that you can put into the game? So it's there's a lot of information right now, Richard, that's just kind of floating around and, and your head's a little bit spinning because when you go to some of these stat research sites, it's not only trying to find the stats you want, but it's just trying to navigate the site, you know? So it's like the first day of class. You know, I went to media day in Milwaukee, and I felt like I was the first student, had to meet my new teachers and had to meet my new classmates and walking through the hallways, trying to get to my class at the right time and find it. So I think it's more or less, Richard, right now for me, it's just being the new person and in a new league, essentially a new league, because I haven't covered the NBA extensively for a full year. So it's all that. So um, I probably will have a better answer for you once, you know, in month one or two or three, once we get into it. Kate, I imagine for you, at least in terms of uh, in terms of challenges, the just the whole idea of getting to know the Sixers and getting to know the league. You're obviously you've done a lot of play by play. You're accomplished at that, but it's not you haven't necessarily done this league, um, these players, you know, this these kind of games. Right. Yeah, I, I think it's going off of what Lisa said. I, I like to say every new sport I call is kind of like learning a new language, right? We, we have heard it spoken and we've paid attention to it and we're obviously big fans of it, but it's not the language we've been speaking day in and day out. 
right now we've been speaking college football for the last six weeks, right? Before that, it was women's basketball. It was the Olympics. It was soccer. It was all these different things. So um, I think it's just becoming fluent in that language is what I like to kind of how I like to refer to it. And for me also, it's a lot of the off the court stuff. It's logistics. I mean, last Saturday, I called UCLA Stanford at Stanford at three in the afternoon. The game finished around seven. I drove back to my house in Oakland about an hour away. I packed the three biggest suitcases I had. And then on Sunday morning, my wife and my pup drove me to SFO and I flew to Philadelphia because media day was Monday. So then all last week I was here. Friday morning, I flew to Stillwater, Oklahoma. I just got back from Stillwater this morning. And we have our first preseason game tomorrow night in studio. Um, so it is a lot of what are we doing with the house back in the Bay Area? When are my wife and pup coming out? You know, so it's that stuff that I don't really want to be worrying about. And thankfully, uh, my spouse and friends and family are taking as much of that off of my plate as possible so I can just focus on the basketball um, but <laughs> Lisa did this the right way, Richard. Uh, I'm doing a national college football package with Mike Golick and I signed that deal before this was even a pipe dream. Um, and I don't like to, you know, go back on commitments if at all possible. So I'm calling college football till November 27th. Um, wow. So you're going to do, so, you'll do both depending on the exhibition season, yeah, uh, I guess the start of the regular season a little bit, right. And then college football. So moving across the country, calling college football every Saturday, and then also, Hey, let's dive into your first ever NBA job. No pressure. Um, but, are there any, uh, <laughs> conflicts in terms of Saturday, uh, NBA game? There is unfortunately. Um, uh, but the Sixers were aware of that when, uh, I came out here and interviewed and auditioned a number of months ago. And I said, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, it will just be for this one season because I have this prior commitment and I honor my commitments. Um, I hope you all will understand, but I want to be as transparent as possible with you. Um, so they know that. Um, and we're going to try to make it as few games as possible. And then after November 27th, I belong to Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, what about what about you, um, Lisa, in terms of uh, other commitments during the 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 NBA season, which is pretty long NBA season, which, you know, normally, traditionally, you you would be doing other stuff um, during that time. Will that still happen? And if so, can you navigate that? I can navigate it. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll do some college stuff where it makes sense. Um, I have some good bosses on both sides now with the Bucks and um, some of my college sports bosses, so to speak. Um, so they're, they're both willing to work with me, which is great. And, and I think there's some priority events, if you will, that, that we'll definitely make room for. But like Kate, I called a college football game this weekend as well. I didn't have to travel cross country for it. Uh, it, was at, it was at Purdue, so I only had to drive you know, a couple of, of hours for that. But um, I decided on kind of my own that that, that was going to be my last college football game uh, for the year. And just because um, I had that luxury, I have that that freedom. My bosses gave me that freedom, and so um, so I just want to concentrate in the next few months, in particular, on the Bucks. And I get this question a lot. You know, are you going to do this, 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 and this? And and my answer is just, you know, we'll do it where it makes sense. And and the Bucks have been flexible. They'll listen. Um, and so we've we've written that kind of in our agreement. Um, and so on both ends, it's it's wonderful to have bosses who look out for you and, and know your interests and are, are being flexible in that way. Lisa, I want to stay with you on this. Um, you're coming into a team that's won an NBA championship. And so like the, the fan base obviously is euphoric. Um, they just heard the broadcast team, obviously, um, you know, 
call a championship, or at least, you know, they heard the, maybe they watched the ABC broadcast, but you understand what I'm saying. Like, this is a team that basically, like, was one of the best teams in the NBA during the regular season, and then obviously went on to win. Um, how do you find going to a team with that kind of success and taking over versus, let's say, if you were going to a team that did not have success and they sort of changed everything, including the the broadcast career. It's just interesting to me. Like I would look at it as you just walked in a phenomenal situation. You're calling a team that's going to be good. Like unless injuries happen for a long time, the best player on that team is young and potentially could get better, which is crazy to think about. You know what I mean? So you're not going into a situation where, Oh man, 25 and you know, 52 again, like this is a team that could win on the championships again. It'll certainly be a playoff team. To me, that seems like a great job, but I, maybe other broadcasters don't look at it that way. Cause they have to walk into a, to a team where people care about how do you how do you see it? I think it's great. Uh, yeah, because I think it actually makes it to be a team broadcaster for a really good team where the fan base is happy and they're winning. Like that's really really easy to talk about. Um, so my job just got a lot easier as long like you said, Richard. I hope you don't jinx them, but as long as everybody stays healthy, um, it is it, it's easy. And and you know the other thing for me is because. I did so much stuff with either Big Ten Network or Fox. And so I was at Marquette or I was at Wisconsin. And so really the production staff who do these games at Valley Sports Wisconsin, I already know, you know, from the producer to the director, to the utility person, to the stage manager, I've already worked with them before. So it is, I'm almost walking into an old familiar family. Like I know them, they know me. And, and I honestly look at this as my role as just learning from everybody else, Marcus Johnson and Zora Stevenson, who have been there, who have experienced these championship years and these, these games and know the team like the back of their hand. I'm going to learn from them. You know, I'm not walking in like I'm big, important broadcaster and play-by-play person. Uh, Come on, Lisa, you always do that though. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you're right. right. That's my reputation, right? And so... I, I joke that when, you know, when I was playing basketball in college, I was a pass first, shoot second point guard. And so I'm, uh, I'm always looking for the assists. And so I'll be, I'll be looking to dish off to Marcus and to score as much as I can. And if I score a bucket or two, that's fine. <laughs> that's all nice. I want pass, pass first, shoot, shoot last. <laughs> but, but you're really just destroying your, uh, your basketball earning income, Lisa. you got to do it the other way now. <laughs> Scoring guard first uh, in the new NBA. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Kate, you're now with Philadelphia, which, I mean, everybody's back and happy. There's certainly no changes on that team, right? I mean, everything is just like as it always is. Richard, stop right there. Don't get me fired before I call a game, (laughs) damn it. All right. So Ben Simmons, obviously, is a major story when it comes to Philadelphia. Um, That's not obviously going to impact what you have to call in front of you. But it's a different situation, one, than Lisa has. And two, here's the other thing, like... Um, I admit I don't know as much about the Milwaukee fan base as I do Philadelphia, but Philadelphia is, you know, it's not an easy city and they take pride in that, right? It's a tough city and they love their sports teams and it's intense like that. And I think that intensity floats down to the broadcast crew as well. And so when you look at Philly as sort of a, an ethos, was that something that like was uh, like attractive to you to be part of a place that like cares about it, like 
till no end or is it intimidating? I don't want to put it. I don't want to answer no, just how I, did you I, approach that? Cause like Philly, Philly's different than almost it's maybe similar to Boston, but it, it, there's not many markets like Philadelphia when it comes to sports. Heck yeah. And, and I cannot wait to dive in because of those things you said. And again, I know it sounds weird coming from a kid who was born and raised in California and has never lived outside the state, but uh, I didn't play a college sport like Lisa. You know, I don't have anybody in this industry. I have had this fight and scratch and claw. I know Lisa has had to do a lot of the same things, um, but tough and gritty and extremely passionate. I mean, I think back to all the times I've cried in my life and they're all about sports. <laughs> like I, I live and breathe um all levels of athletics. Um, you know, I played, I officiated, and now I'm calling them and this is life for me. So yeah, when this job opened and everybody said, I don't know about Philly, I said, it sounds like the perfect fit for me. Um, and again, been in the, the Bay area for the past 20 years, Berkeley and San Francisco and Oakland and, you know, they might not be as passionate about their sports teams, but there's still a lot of passion there just in a slightly different way. Um, and I think it circles back to what Lisa said, right? Like Midwest born and raised. And I love every time I visit the Midwest, but it is a little bit different. Um, uh, and so the toughness and the grittiness, I think those two things can easily fit for Oakland where I've lived for the last five years. So uh, I'm really excited. And I understand the people who are saying she's not a Philly native. She's not going to get it. But uh, I got great advice. I went out to lunch with Mark Zumoff again, um, the man who held this position for 27 years. And he said, Kate, if you love Philly, they're going to love you back. Just care about, care about the team, care about the city. And, and another thing, which uh, Lisa, you probably, I mean, I haven't gotten this from other teams because I was, you know, the sideline reporter for the earthquakes back in the day. I've obviously covered the giants and the warriors and the 49ers out in the Bay area. And you're kind of always selling hope. And in Philly, they said, don't try to BS the fans. Like if somebody makes a bad play, you need to say it's a bad play or the fans aren't going to trust you. So, you know, don't go overboard on it, but call what you see. If somebody's having a bad game, say it's a bad game. So, yeah, it's, it's a great sports city. And I think they respect honesty and, and, and treating them like adults. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to stay with you, Kate, and then we'll go to Lisa. Um, it's the same question basically for both of you. I, I understand that these jobs are specific to you individually. You both, um, you both won these jobs. That's probably the best way to say it. I mean, these are like highly competitive, you know, lottery ticket kind of jobs. But at a at the sort of the sports media level, or the sort of sports media culture, you you are both now pioneers. Um, no women have held these jobs before you two. Um, the good news is there'll be women after you because of you. And so I wonder just, um, and I'll start with you, Kate, like, what does that mean? What is that? I know you have been a pioneer in many ways before, particularly in your area, but this feels like a sort of a whole new level of 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 pioneering, uh, particularly because my sort of instinct tells me that you're the first of many, many, many as we sort of head down the road. Mm, I hope so, Richard. I sure hope so. Um, you know, I, I said in in the tweet that sent out when the Sixers announced it last week that um you know, this is for all the women who came before me, who had it much harder than me, who proved we deserve a shot. And it is so important. And I know it is for Lisa as well. Um, I know that we're considered the pioneers because we are the first two to hold these positions, but we don't, in my opinion, get these looks, these opportunities that we've had the last five, 10 years to build our resumes, to get to this point, 
if it wasn't for, you know, the Nancy Liebermans, the Annie Myers, uh, all the people who did this before and maybe didn't get the shot. So it's really important. I could go through, you know, 500 names, but I won't go all the way down that. Um, I didn't then want this job to be the first woman or be the second woman or whatever it may be. I wanted this job because it was the next step in my career as a play-by-play announcer. You want to move from high school to college to the pros. Um, And this is a roundabout way of saying it means a whole hell of a lot to me that this could um, hopefully not just crack open the door, but like rip it off the hinges and throw it into the ocean. Um, That's my hope. And not just for women. Lisa and I have talked about this too, not just for white women. We're often the first ones in the door, right? But for every type of woman, every type of man, everybody who loves sports, anybody who wants to do this, uh, I truly hope that we kick ass and take names over the next few years. And like Lisa said on the great shirt she released, you know, that it just becomes normal. So that five, 10, 15 years down the road, it's truly who's the best person for this job. And that's who we're going to hire. Same, same, for you, same question for you, Lisa. Yeah. Um, you know, Kate's referencing my, my favorite phrase is that I, I hope that one day a female voice can become background noise. And, and it's true. Like think of how many times you just, you sit in a room and you hear two male announcers, you don't think twice and you're, you're on your phone or you're doing something and something else, you know, make whatever. And, and you don't think twice, but, and I'm guilty of it as anyone. When I hear a female voice on a quote unquote men's game, I, I stop and I figure out who's that, you know, and I try to, I try to figure out who it is and I have to stop myself, you know, from doing that. And, but the only way that myself, Kate, you, Richard, anyone can stop themselves from doing it is when you start hearing those female voices sprinkled in everywhere in, in, in every sport. And I echo Kate's sentiments in the fact that we're only a small piece to the process, you know, with, with all the women coming before us, to this point, and, and as you mentioned, Richard, all the doors that hopefully this will open in the future. And, and I'll add this is this is equally important for all the little girls, but maybe more importantly, all the little boys as well who are sitting there watching an NBA game. Because this is not just a little girl story or a woman's story. This is a little boy story and a men's story as well, because we're all in this together. And to normalize it and to make it sound like background noise, that's the only way it's going to happen is for little boys and little girls to watch an NBA game and not think twice when they hear my voice or Kate's voice on an NBA game. Kate, um, I, you know, I, 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 will not, I, I would not ask you guys, mostly because you wouldn't answer me, uh, <laughs> like for like sort of contractual status or anything like that. And by the way, your agent would tell you the same thing. But here's I, I, the reason I'm sort of doing this uh, ham-handed uh, preface here to this question is because one of the things that would be important to me would be that you guys at least have multi-year deals in that you are given the chance to sort of figure out how this, um, how your own style works, how you work with your colleagues, and just get used to the rhythm in the NBA. It is It is not an easy job for someone with 15 years experience calling the NBA, let alone Zero. This has nothing to do with being a woman or pioneering. This is just sort of as a new broadcaster. Are you confident, Kate? Do you feel like the the Sixers are will give you that opportunity to sort of find yourself as a new NBA broadcaster? Yes, and that was uh, one of the many reasons I said yes, Richard, um, because of the support I felt and feel even more so now that I'm here um, from the folks at NBC Sports Philadelphia who will be airing our games, and also from the Sixers. I was 
overwhelmed um, with the amount of support that I received in the past four days. Um, and yeah, they, they truly want me here and that felt wonderful and they're going to support me. So, yeah. Lisa, it's a little different for you because you have some NBA calling experience. You have a lot of game calling experience. Um, but I, th I would still say sort of, I would still ask you if you feel like the Bucks sort of have that kind of support for you, for you to, um, work your way into the market and, and for, um, for the, for the audience to just sort of get used to what you bring. Um, do you feel, you feel like the bucks sort of are, are there and they'll give you a chance, a multiple year chance, let's say to, to, to sort of find your voice in this NBA. So when I was doing my zoom interview with them, uh, you know, there's all these important people with the bucks on, you're looking at all these faces and you're looking at all these important faces at Valley sports, Wisconsin, they asked me, uh, how are you going to handle, you know, being the, the first female voice for a men's profession, you know, whatever. And, and I said, look, I said, this is, this is my, this is part of my story. This is Kate's story. This is, you know, so many women out there who are, who are trying to, to make, to pave their way in, in, in places that haven't been paved before. And so I said, this is nothing new to me. My question is, this is going to be new to you. And, and are you ready to handle it? And, and I think the fact that many days later that they hired me is their answer. Because um, I, I, I do feel the support like Kate and being in Milwaukee and media day and training camp. Yeah, you feel that support, but it's, it's before you call a game, right? And, and, I, and I know they've done their homework and I know they know what's coming. And it's going to be a navigation process, I think, for all of us, right? Because... Once you hear that female voice night in and night out, it's going to be a little bit different, I think, for some fans to handle, to tolerate, to embrace. But the Bucks are a great organization to do it with. I feel like Kate has, has echoed those sentiments with the 76ers. The fact that they've made this hire, I think, is, is the first screaming yes that they, they want to handle it. Now, is there, is there a handbook on how to handle it? No. So we're all going to have to kind of navigate that together. But they're more than willing. They wanted to pull the trigger if they didn't want to handle it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stay with you, Lisa. Is how, what's the, um, how much, you know, play by play by play people, uh, nationally at your level, perhaps even locally, like, you know, it's important, I think, to have a relationship depending on what you're covering, you know, with the coach, especially if you're doing pregame and postgame stuff. And if you want to sort of tell stories, I, I think with players too, if it's college, obviously that's turnover. So things change. So Lisa, I, um, how important will it be for you to have a professional relationship with the players to get to know the players, uh, the players to recognize you? I don't know if you're going to be traveling on uh, charters with them on the road and stuff like that, but um, how will you, how do you want to approach that? And what's the importance level of, let's say, a Chris Middleton type or a Giannis type sort of trusting you and, and having a relationship with you? People ask, you know, what's your play-by-play -play style? And, and part of my play-by-play -play style is the fact that I said, I approach it with a reporter's heart. You know, I, I got into this business as a sideline reporter. So I love getting to know the, the personalities of the game, whether that's the coaches or players and, and getting to know them and telling their stories. So for me, I've always approached it like that. Um, I'll tell you this. One of my first local jobs in, in TV was in Lansing, Michigan. And, and I developed a relationship with Tom Izzo. And I said, look, I'm a basketball junkie. Can I go and watch practice? And he said, Lisa, just whenever you want to come, you know, even if it's not quote unquote media day, you come. 
And so I envision myself a little bit like I sat at Michigan State's basketball practice many, many days and sometimes on my days off. And I envision myself doing a lot of that with the Bucks. And we will travel for road games as of right now. You know, our first preseason game is at Memphis on Tuesday and, and we will hop on the charter and go there. And, and you know, I, I think it's kind of picking and choosing your moments. You don't want to be too intrusive and, and get in the way of, of their job. Right. But I'm going to be around and they're going to see my face at practices because like I said, I'm a basketball junkie and I love that. And that is how I feel like I have worked my way up is to do the things behind the scenes that not everybody gets to see. So absolutely, I will try to develop a relationship with Bud and the rest of the players and, and try to incorporate as much as I can into the game cast in that way. Kate, a similar approach or a different approach for that question? Oh, yeah. No, very similar approach. Wouldn't it be great if I just said, no, I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to figure it out on my own. <laughs> no, but I, I, you can't rush relationships, right? You can't rush trust. You just have to earn it all. So when I get into new situations like this, um, it's like Lisa said, it's more be seen than heard at first. So I was at every day of training camp and media day last week that I could be at just so that people could see me. Um, and then I introduced myself to some of the beat reporters. The Sixers com folks have been incredible at after a guy was at the podium saying, you know, hey, we want you to meet Danny Green. And Danny and I sat for a couple minutes. Doc Rivers asked for a one on one just to get to know me. <laughs> Doc spent. Yeah. I mean, who, who gets that? Those are Again, two very, very media friendly people. Danny Green and Doc Rivers. Well, is good. And that's and that's a, another thing that I heard. That was another one of the reasons that I wanted to come here, because I just thought it was going to be a really fun, accessible team to cover, but I'm not going to force anything because I know these guys are superstars and they get asked to do so many things every single day. So I think I'm just going to, I'm going to be there. Uh, we are not traveling until at least the new year. So we'll be calling road games off monitor from NBC sports, Philadelphia, but anytime they're home, any practice I can attend. And so far, Everybody at the Sixers has been incredibly accommodating. Just what can we do to help you settle in as quickly as possible, Kate? Um, that has been what everybody has said, Doc included. So um, just really looking forward to getting to know everybody. Oh, cool. A couple more here, and I'll let you guys go. Uh, Kate, I want to stick with you. The, the one good thing about the NBA is that the league at the moment has so many great play-by-play -play people, particularly nationally that it would strike me that there's so many people out there that if you wanted to sort of get some advice from or sort of how they do it, you know, whether it's Kevin Harlan or Mike Breen or Ian Eagle, I mean, like the, 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 if you were an NBA fan, like it really is kind of like the halcyon days of like game callers in particular. Um, um, analysts are always subjective, but in terms of game callers, I think most people would objectively say there's a lot of really great game callers at the moment who are working. So have you um, have you reached out to anybody or maybe you had previous relationships with with some of these people just to sort of pick their brain on sort of how they've done it all these years? Yeah, well, a lot of people I want to shout them out have reached out to me and I'm sure it was the same with Lisa. Oh, cool. I mean, we sent texts to each other with multiple cuss words and curse words in them because and I don't understand cool. why you won't do that on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> we're so excited. I need downloads and you're I not think, helping me. I think I might have tweeted in all caps like I'm so fucking excited Thank for you. you finally. Something like that. Um, because I mean, she's worked her ass off for so many years and done so many jobs and uh, 
sort of landed with the world champions. I'm just so excited for Lisa. Um, so she was one of the first to reach out. Um, you mentioned Ian Eagle. Ian reached out. I've, I've never met Ian before, but I worked with his son Noah at the Olympics. Noah sent me a notice well. Um, Brian Anderson, who I know is a friend of Lisa's, who I've never met before. Yeah, another, um, good, he, another good He got my cell phone. Yeah, exactly. He got my cell from somebody else and, and sent a great note. Um, Bob Fitzgerald, who is the voice of the Warriors, who I've known for years out in the Bay Area, and Tim Roy, the radio voice of the Warriors, two guys who I've known for a very long time, sent wonderful messages to me. Um, so, you know, I, I've already been in contact with those people, and I'm going to be in contact with a lot more. But I think the, the important thing to do is not what I'm trying to do, <laughs> is not overwhelm myself with outside information right now. Like, I earn this position. I know that I'm a great play-by-play announcer and I'm supposed to be here. So I'm trying to take it one thing at a time, trying to settle in. I need to unpack my suitcase from Stillwater. Then I need to go get milk for tomorrow. (laughs) Then I need to go to FedEx before they close at six tonight to print out my boards for our first preseason game tomorrow. Right. And, And I am going to start reaching out to those announcers slowly, but surely over the course of the week. But I think as Lisa said, my head is still spinning right now. There's so much going on. Um, so I haven't had a chance to yet, but just knowing that all of those folks are out there and I, there's many more that I didn't mention. So I, I come from a reporter's background as well. So once I get a little bit settled in, just like Lisa said, I will be reaching out and asking for the tricks of the trade. No doubt. Lisa, same, uh, same question to you, whether, whether it was you who reached out or perhaps, uh, I imagine um, just given where you've worked in uh, CBS connections, et cetera, I'd imagine people have reached out as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone from, uh, you know, sometimes you're looking at your phone, I'm sure this happened to Kate, and, and there's a couple of unidentified numbers with text messages and, um, or the numbers that come through, I don't, I don't ever answer like an unidentified number right now. And so the voicemails that are left and, and you're thinking, Mike Green left me a voicemail. I had never met him before. There was a text message from a, from a number and I'm thinking, who is this? And, and I and I open it up and it's Brad Nessler, you know, and I've never met him before, but um, I am friends with um, Adam Amin. Uh, he has gone to the extent of even taking videos of his research tools and how he goes about it. Um, Ian Eagle, as you mentioned, Richard, I, I know him from our CBS ties. Uh, you know, Mike Tirico, um, I have developed a relationship with him through so many years. That's that's not new. Brian Anderson is one of my closest friends in the business. And so, um, you know, we we would constantly talk, you know, throughout this whole process. So so hearing from Brian is, is nothing new. But, um, yeah, it's you know, it's great. And it's great to to build uh, that family. Right. Whether it's it's the old people who you've talked to or now the new people. And, and that's what I'm excited to do. You know, we're on this MBA seminar and I'm, I'm looking at all these faces and seeing these names of people who you admire or voices that you've listened to. And now you think you're part of the family. They've all been so welcoming. And I think that's the biggest key, whether you've been in this business for one year or five years or 10 years or 20 years, you can always learn and you can always get better. And, and just picking the brains of, of everyone from, from the rookies to the vets is, is the way that you get better in that way. All right, let's finish up with this. I'll start with you, Kate. How will you judge success? Oh, the shortest questions are always the most difficult to answer. How will I judge success? Um, hmm. I think I will judge success if I am accomplishing what uh, the folks who hired me have asked me to do 
which is to 82 or however many games we get to call a year, um, make it a fun, enjoyable, passionate experience that makes fans want to keep watching, whether the Sixers are up by 30 points or whether they're down by 30 points. Um, have fun. Make it a really fun, conversationable, conversational, enjoyable broadcast um, because there is a monotony to the seasons, right? Regardless of what sport. So how are you going to keep people interested? Um, I think if I can do that, um, that will be one part of success. I think if I can continue to, to get better and grow as a broadcaster, that will be another part of the success. Um, and kind of hearkening back a little bit to one of the things Lisa and I were saying earlier, if hopefully by the end of the season, and that could be too soon, it might take a few more years, but if it's, I hope that soon people aren't saying, oh, it's Kate, the, the woman who's the announcer for the 76ers. It's just, oh, look, there's the TV voice of the Sixers or, or it's Kate, you know, she calls the Sixers games and it has become normalized that that'll be a big part of the success for me too. I love that last part of your answer, Kate, is, you know, I always say I, I, I personally, and, and I know we're looked at this right as female broadcaster, but when I put on the headset, I think of myself as a broadcaster. Um, so I talked to Jim Paschke uh, many weeks ago on the phone, you know, we, we couldn't see each other in person. He was in Texas and I was in the Midwest. And so he said to me, uh, your seat's a great seat. And so I think first and foremost, I want to do Jim justice for all the years that he's put into this job. So, and I, and I never want to take for granted that seat. You know, I never want to take for granted that when I put on the headset and I'm sitting down, it is a great seat. And so it's success for me if, if I never take that for granted. And I remind myself of that every time I sit down, whatever afternoon or night, whenever the game is. And, and I, I think along with Kate, it's success. You can't control people's reactions, right? And, and how they, they perceive a, a broadcast. But it is a goal of mine that not only your broadcast partners feel like you're sitting down on the couch and watching the game together. And if they take off the headset and they look at you and they said, that was really fun. That's the best feeling in the world as a play-by-play -play, for your partners to feel that way. And if your partners are feeling that way, chances are a good majority of the audience is also feeling that way. Um, it is nothing close to think that we are sitting like the fans on the couch with nothing else to do, but then to watch the game because there's so much other stuff that's going on, right? You have to juggle a lot as a play-by-play, -play. but to give them the sense that we're sitting down with them on the couch and we're your voice and we're with you and this is our team too and we're having fun and let's talk about the Bucs or the 76ers together, that's going to be awesome. And, and if I take off the headset for the last time on the final day of, of the season and I feel that way, then to me, Richard, that's defining success. Uh, the last thing for both of you is do you guys know when you might be at a game where both of you are calling it? <laughs> no, but I think people were looking at that. Maybe March, but I think the first number of them are either ABC or TNT. They might be exclusive broadcast to start out okay. with. So we're looking at 2022 in theory where you guys might both be in the same arena. Knock on wood. Yeah. And well, Jim Paschke, I think, was the one who tweeted it out. He had already gone ahead and, and looked ahead. And, and you're right, Kate. I think it was a, a I haven't looked ahead yet, but in Jim Paschke's research, <laughs> it was a it was a final day in March. You know, so the Bucks are going to max out on their national TV dates. 
uh, which will be 12. And so um, I haven't looked ahead, but it's got to be one of those, you know, a few of those 12 that coincide with the 76ers. But wouldn't that be awesome, Kate, if uh, if we can be in the arena together? I can't. I can't wait, Lisa. Like I like I told you in all caps with multiple curse words over text. I'm uh, I'm just so excited that you got this position that I I, I have the honor of um, getting to sit down in, in the seat that Mark Zumoff held for 27 years. And I, I think it's going to be really great, actually, that we're doing this together. Um, I know I kind of spoiled the fun for you. You were all out there by yourself for a couple of weeks and then here I came in. Not at all. Not at all. Because it was, I have to say it was, it was an overwhelming when it came out. Um, at first I was like this and then, you know, I'm holding my phone for those just listening. And then, and then I, and then I quickly put my phone away because it, it got overwhelming. And, uh, in a sense, it's a good overwhelming, right? Because it's, it's, it means change. And, uh, and then when, when I saw the news of you and I, and I text you and, uh, and I thought, Let's share it. You know, let's go at this together. Um, let's kind of build something, you know, and help build something for other people. But um, the attention can go to Kate now a little bit because <laughs> I'm you sick of take it back. Two interviews and, and whatnot. So, Kate, you can take you oh, can no. take some of it. <laughs> you can take it back. But I think that's one of the good things that we're going to be going on this journey and starting it at the same time so that we will have each other. Because as you mentioned, Richard, we have so much support from all of our male counterparts from the teams like I, I think there's a reason that the first two female voices are in the NBA that really can go unsaid. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about when it comes to the progressiveness and foresight of the National Basketball Association. But also getting to do this with each other. You know, we were already texting about it on Friday as we were heading to our football games. I just I can already feel the support and I'm really looking forward to going on this ride with Lisa and everybody else in the league. Yeah, it's well said. Well, hopefully I can get you guys back uh, middle of the year, three quarters of the year. We'll sort of check in. and uh, When Philly's ready to hit the eject button and send me back to Oakland. <laughs> hopefully by then, Kate Kate will have unpacked her apartment there, Lisa, and so she'll be set with the with stuff. All right, Lisa Byington is the new television voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. You may have heard they won the National Basketball Association Championship last year. Kate Scott is the new television voice of the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh don't blame her at all, regardless of what happens with Ben Simmons. She's got you know, either good, bad, or we'll indifferent. We'll see you in the conference finals, Lisa. We'll see you in the Eastern Conference Finals, baby. <laughs> there you go, Kate. Like, like, a, like a Philadelphia native already. <laughs> Lisa and Kate, uh, congratulations. I know you'll do great. Uh, um, you know, you're both really exceptional broadcasters, so it's a really good day um, for the business. But uh, I'm, I'm really happy for both of you. I think it's going to be an awesome, uh, just, a, just an awesome, awesome couple of years for you guys. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. 
All right, as I said at the top, Eli Saslow is a Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter, also a former sports writer, by the way, or at least has done sports in his time. Um, and he has a new book that uh, that is now out, Voices from the Pandemic, Americans Tell Their Stories of Crisis, Courage, and Resilience. It's an expanded version of an oral history project that Eli did last year for the Washington Post. Um, if you read it, it was pretty extraordinary work. Um, sadly, though, these stories never seem to end. And I'm pleased to be joined by Eli Saslow on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, Eli, uh, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I mean, it's uh, every time that it that I, I talk about it is an oral history, which is true. It's what it is. I mean, it's people narrating their own stories. But uh, unfortunately, of course, like the the history the history piece is like a little aspirational right now. It's um, you know this 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 virus and pandemic are very much are present. Yeah, you know, and and so many of these stories obviously continue to unfold. Yeah. So let me let's just make sure that I have. Um the background correct as I, as I proceed with some questions, there's 27 interviews in the book that you conducted from essentially January, 2020 to January, 2021. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, 27 chapters. Some of those have, um, multiple, multiple people in the, in those chapters. So, uh, more than 27 interviews. And also just to be clear, um, you know, for many of these people, I was interviewing them, dozens of times, right? So it's like interviews that unfolded over over hours, uh, sometimes over multiple weeks as, as kind of they were living through some of these traumas in real time. And then I would I would condense and, and lightly edit uh, and structure those conversations into these, these longer monologue first-person pieces. All right. So this is where I want to start. Um, what is the challenge of talking to people about things that are, are can be truly horrific, uh, death, and despair and sickness and did did you sort of have i don't know maybe strategy is not the right word but did you have a certain approach that you used to try to get people to to feel free and comfortable to talk about these things it's such a great question um and and the truth is i think there's no there's no strategy like like what what works um to build trust with people is uh, genuine curiosity, uh, I think present listening um, and empathy and, and also making clear to these people when I'm with them or when I'm on the phone with them um, that I'm, I'm not I'm not coming to them from a place of judgment. Uh, I'm coming whenever is possible from a place of understanding. I'm, I'm trying to understand what's happened to them. Um, and, and especially in the case of a book like this, where almost all of the people that, that I interviewed um, are people who are are not very public, right? They're they're regular people who don't talk to a reporter very often, and and I think in some of those cases, for them talking about um, some of these traumatic experiences, whether that's like b- being evicted and and narrating that experience to somebody in real time, or you know talking about trying to give CPR to your mother as she's dying of this virus, I, I think. And I hope that it makes them feel seen. Like it's um, yes, that stuff is awful and terrible to talk about, but it's also real. And and I'm sure that uh, you know they're they're going through those traumas in their head, whether they're talking about them or not. So so to have somebody say, "Hey, I know that you went through this," um, I think it matters. I think it's important. I think if other people understand what it was like or understand how it felt, maybe they'll think about some of these things in a different way. Um, I hope that that's, uh, that that's enlivening to people. Um, and, and that I think helps build trust. Did, did, were these, I'm sure obviously some of these or many of these were Zoom or phone. Did you do, were some of these in person? What, how did you ultimately end up uh, talking to these subjects? 
Yeah, all of the above. You know, I mean, it's um, it's interesting because the work that I normally do for the Post and and you know much of my previous reporting and, and previous books is is really observed narrative writing. Like I I, I typically like to almost go and embed uh, with the people that I am writing about so that I can interview them, of course, but also so that I can sort of see the circumstances of their lives play out um, and I can hear them talking to each other. Right. So so if somebody's being deported, rather than talk to them about the experience of being deported, I'm going to get on the plane and I'm going to go to Mexico and I'm going to be there for the first week where they're back, you know, reacclimating to that, to that life. Um, as soon as the pandemic hit, it became pretty clear, especially in those first months, that that kind of reporting was going to be inherently problematic. I mean, I mean not only was it going to put me at some uh, small measure of risk, but also for me to get on a plane and then go spend time with the people that I was writing about and um, that would be that would be putting the people that I write about at risk too. I'd be showing up as sort of like a hot potato, and and that wasn't a comfortable um, and frankly it wasn't an ethical situation. So, in some ways, these pieces began from a place of accommodation. It, it was me thinking, how can I still tell stories um, that that are intimate and immediate uh, and and newsworthy about what's happening in people's lives if I can't be there to see it myself? Um, so especially at the beginning these pieces were largely reported uh, with hours and hours of phone calls. I mean, I, I would I would find the person that I thought I wanted to write about. And um, for a week or two weeks, I would essentially try to spend 10, 15 hours on the phone with them and talking to them about, about their lives. Uh, and, and sometimes then also FaceTiming, having them FaceTime me from wherever they were so that I could see things play out in some way. And um, as the pandemic went on, and certainly once I became vaccinated and others were becoming vaccinated, I was able to do more in person, but initially almost all over the phone, which, which was a really interesting challenge. Why, uh, I'm sorry, what did your reporting on COVID tell you about the country? Well, um, I mean, I'll eventually, or you can sort of take in here about why this became a culture war issue, but there's very few people probably who went as deep on the reporting of COVID in the U.S. as you did. And so I mean, what were your findings on, on how this impacted people? Yeah. Beyond, so beyond, it, the, beyond the obvious uh, people who are getting sick and, and things like that. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think when I started this, like, uh, and you alluded to it a, a, a few minutes ago, that like this, there's so much darkness in, in um, you know, the, the the country, the world has has been through a massive trauma now for 18 months. And, and I think a part of me thought that spending a year plus um, talking to people in, in oftentimes acute pain would be um, numbing or, or depressing. Uh, and, and the truth is that in many ways, it was the opposite. I, I think like we're, we're all so siloed from each other now. And especially during the pandemic, it, it's, it's mostly been an experience of isolation. Like we, we exist in our own little, little physical spaces and our own bubbles, our own pods, our own ideological bunkers. Um, and, and for me to be able to sort of spend a year reaching out beyond that and, and thinking not about, about myself and the circumstances of my own life, but about what other people were going through and um, felt often like a gift. And also, frankly, you know, in a, in a pandemic that has been so much about, um, especially in the United States, political dysfunction, uh, systemic failure, not having enough PPE, a country that was massively underprepared, and getting on the phone with people who were, uh, who were living out the worst impacts of this pandemic and still having them have the ability to trust a stranger over the phone, uh, having, having them be able to be present to, to have the emotional courage to talk about their experiences and that kind of resilience. And, and frankly, that kind of basic honesty was 
in so many ways for me, restorative. I mean, thinking about the humanity um, in terms of what people were going through and how they were living it with with heart uh, and and with courage, um, oftentimes for me was was frankly sustaining because thinking about so many other things about the pandemic and our national response uh, was was often infuriating, right? And and there's a lot of legitimate anger, I think, around that. I, I would think that talking to people in um, in the medical world, there's a lot of um, sort of ER stories in here. Did, when you when you did these interviews, did you feel like medical people process this differently? Because I can tell you when um, when I see someone who works in a hospital, a nurse, a doctor, uh, support staff, like talk about this, it, it just like I I I. I, I can't process what they are dealing with having to see this sickness and death in front of them. Um, and, and while we're all impacted, Eli, obviously by COVID, I feel like those on the front lines, like their stories are just far different than ours. And I wonder what for you was it like talking to the medical people, the people who are really like in, in the middle of this? Yeah, I mean, humbling oftentimes, honestly, because especially now, um, when these people have been have been providing this kind of care for for eighteen months, and sometimes at hospitals that are frankly overwhelmed, underprepared, uh, and and don't have the resources to treat this many sick people, um, to do that for eighteen months is astounding. And and you know, at the beginning, when everybody was coming outside at seven o'clock each night and and cheering for the the nursing aides and and respiratory therapists uh, doing a lot of this dirty work. Um, you know, may, maybe, maybe that was uh, encouraging for people. Maybe that, that helped. Um, now, if you look at the climate that we're in, there are people protesting outside hospitals. Many, many of the, the, you know, the COVID victims that these doctors and, and nurses are treating are people who have chosen not to get vaccinated, even though science uh, in every way indicates that that's the, the right and only choice. Um, and, and people are, are sort of in denial of this virus and sometimes trying to refuse care from the people who are trying to save them. So not only the, the exhaustion that that, that that must, uh, you know, the toll that it must exact on these people, but also the empathy, right? To still be able to care for and to want to treat these people and save them again and again uh, is is remarkable. I mean, one of the characters, uh, one of the people in this book um, is a doctor in a, in a very small town in North Dakota and, and in a place where there was and continues to be a lot of denial of, of the coronavirus and what it is. People didn't want to wear masks and on and on it goes. And, and this, this doctor was one of uh, two doctors in, in, in this area. You know, he, he, all these people were his friends and his neighbors. Both of his parents ended up dying of, of this virus in a nursing home. Uh, tons of people in this town died and he was the one who treated all of them. And, and, and for him to look at these friends and neighbors who were still denying the existence of this virus as he was trying to keep them alive. And I, I just, I think about, uh, yeah, having, having to live with that kind of anger and frustration and also like manage to love the people that you're caring for is is so complicated and remarkable um you know and, and the other thing is these people got uh disproportionately sick right everybody on the front lines and um, you know they were more at risk when i was talking to darlene who you mentioned who was a a nurse she she was sick uh in syracuse new york she got sick early and she got really sick and and she wasn't getting better um even though she had been a hiker who didn't have pre-existing conditions, she'd, she'd caught it at work and it was sticking with her. And, and when I talked to her, I thought I was going to be writing a piece about what it was like to have long
long COVID because it had been eight, nine weeks and she hadn't recovered. And in fact, as my conversations went on with Darlene, it became clear that she was getting sicker. And and at the beginning, we'd talk for two hours on the phone. And, and as the weeks went on, we'd talk for 20 minutes and she would be out of breath. And then it was one or two minutes and she would say, I have to call you back. And then she was sending me frantic Facebook messages from the hospital again, where she was. Uh, and, and, and then she was dead. And, and uh, instead of talking to her, I was talking to the son, the 20 year old son who tried to care for her in her last days as she was, you know, losing, losing function, uh, basic function in her body. Um, so I think even for these people on the front lines, especially in the early days, this virus was so confusing and it was so new that that the symptoms caught them off guard and i think what was really jarring was they didn't quite know how to treat it uh and and they also didn't know what they were experiencing themselves when they started to, to have symptoms how did the post um how did the post sort of um approach this assignment for you did 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 they allow you to sort of pick and come up with the subjects did you did you have to file a certain amount of times uh on a weekly or monthly or bi-weekly basis, what what was that inter intersection with your your editors at the Post, and ultimately what we saw in the paper? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in that um, for the most part, uh, like I, I am able to sort of pursue um, you know pursue the stories that that uh, that I want to pursue, and 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 did it like in very close partnership with my editor David Finkel, who's a, a great writer and, and editor at the post. Um, but typically how it would work was I would try to do one of these pieces uh, every Sunday or or every 10 days-ish. Um, so I would I would kind of canvas the country and think, you know, wh- what is, what's a tension point right now? Um, what's something that I'd want to explore and know more about? You know, for instance, when, when there started to be massive controversies about masking in the United States, um, it became clear that the people often having to enforce these mask mandates were the low-wage essential workers who, who worked at grocery stores or wherever else, and people were coming in unmasked. So then I, I would, you know, I, I would start talking to store clerks around the country and start figuring out, you know, who do I want to write about? Where's where's the place where I want to tell this story? Um, and I would talk to. I joined a Facebook group for you know store clerks in the time of COVID. Uh, I talked to people who were in viral videos of having customers you know yell at them and and throw all their groceries on the floor when they were asked to wear a mask. Um, and and in one of those conversations, I talked to this woman Lori Wagner who was working by herself at a at a grocery store, a small little store in in rural North Carolina. A sixty three year old woman. Um, asthmatic, terrified of the virus for good reason, uh, in in a county that had passed a mask mandate, but the local police had refused to enforce it. uh, And everybody was coming into her store unmasked um, and she was terrified of them. And and so she'd begun at the beginning by putting a sign out front, sort of appealing to kindness and saying, showing a mask is a way to show that you care about us. Please wear a mask. And and people still kept walking by the sign. So then she put a sign outside that said, wear a mask, it's the law. And they still kept, kept coming in. So then the sign became, if there's no mask, get out. We don't want you at our store. People still kept coming in, and the confrontations that she was having with customers were getting more and more loaded, and frankly, more and more violent. And um, until she, it had gotten to the point where she kept the store door locked, kept herself locked in the in the staff room, and when there was a, a ring on the door, she would get a can of mace and come to the counter prepared for whatever confrontation would come next. So, you know, in a situation like that, after talking to all of these store clerks, I would have a sense of what it was like to be in that position, and and then I would realize, you know, Lori is the person whose story. 
I, I want to share and, and I want to know. And then for a week, I would be on the phone with Lori. I'd be on FaceTime while she was at the store. And, and, and I would be, be then working to tell her story for, for that week's, that week's uh, you know, edition of this series. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, here's the sort of the last part I want to get to. Um, within the course of the reporting, Eli, did you, I mean, I think as a writer, you sort of instinctively know, like, if I wanted to turn this into a book or a longer form project, I could. Um, did that happen in the midst of the reporting or um, more near the end of the journey? I'm just, you know, I'm wondering, you know, you obviously the post is your principal employer, but you also know you can, you know, you have something that if put into, uh, you know, a compendium, basically, you know, you know, if, if placed in some some sort of like narrative way, all these stories really are intertwined into one larger story. And so how did you sort of approach that when it went from, you know, newspaper assignment to, you know, I think I have something larger here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was, you know, probably after I'd done 10 or, or 15 of these, um, I realized that I was, I was not just telling sort of individual stories, but, but building a, a collection of, of what, you know, what this time had been like. Um, and, and frankly, even just for me, um, it felt like, you know, if I if I want to explain to our kids um, what what happened someday and what people in this country went through, uh, you know, rather than telling them to go look up uh, 20, 25 stories that ran uh, at one point in the newspaper, like I I it's a collection. I, I I want to I want to give them something that feels whole and and complete um, and also. You know, I think um, in writing about somebody like Lori in in the paper, uh, I would tell her story, but because it was it was one person's story, and then going on to something the next week, I couldn't then tell the story of the customer that came in without the mask from from that person's perspective who was screaming at her, right? So, so I think the other thing for me was thinking um, if I do this as a book, then yes, I can I can have. I can have the piece in here about um, the woman Tuesday Bar who who was evicted during the middle of the pandemic after losing her job in Texas. Uh, but then after that, I can also have the story of the the mom and pop landlord who had six people out of out of ten apartments that weren't paying, and 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 it was collapse. You know, it was collapsing the landlord's you know personal life also, and and tell the story of of what that's like from that side. So so it sort of sort of was like um, you know this can become bigger, uh, and and and. That's that's when it that's when it appealed to me, you know, and 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 honestly, it just a lot of these stories lived in my head, and and it it's a little bit of a weird journalistic exercise because they they are not my stories. Uh, they're they're these these are these people's stories, and and every every word that is in the book um, is a word that was said to me. It's 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 a quote. Uh, yes, like I was um, doing a lot of work to to draw people out in these conversations, and I was um, hopefully structuring them in a way that that uh, is is moving and coherent. But the experiences are are theirs, um, and I, I think. If, if this work has power, it's largely because the connection that a reader feels um, 
is direct with with the person who they're reading about. It, it's a direct interaction between Lori and that store, and and you reading about what she's going through. Um, and I hope that has like an immediacy that also fuels empathy and and makes people think about you know, what other people's experiences in this country are like. Um, because the pandemic, while I I do hope it ends at some point. Um, especially in the United States, uh, but this is also true around the world. Like it will end for those of us who have some degree of privilege. People who were vulnerable before this virus hit are going to be massively more vulnerable uh, afterwards. Um, they're, they're losing homes, losing livelihoods. Uh, they've lost more people around them. They've died disproportionately because they had to go to work while this was happening because they have lousy healthcare. And, um, you know, inequality is, is a massive worsening problem in the United States, and it's going to be so much worse as a legacy of this virus. So, you know, I think these stories, I hope, uh, should stay top of mind as we continue to navigate what's next. Um, and this is where I want to end. The last one is, you know, the um, no matter if and when the pandemic ends, it's it's going to um, irrevocably change uh, the United States. It's going to change the world. Let, let's sort of be honest. Um, you know, I don't, I think the idea of sort of going back to what it was before is sort of impossible, um, sort of just given uh, culturally how it's changed, um, how it's changed COVID. Are you an optimist or a pessimist when it comes to how the American society um, will come out of this? Because at the moment, you know, you see so so much divide uh, because of COVID. Uh, it didn't necessarily... Uh, Eli sort of bring the country together in many ways no. it splintered a lot of the country. It did. And so I wonder, do you see, I don't know, do you see a way out of that post COVID or did COVID maybe reveal something that, um, you know, maybe many people sort of didn't want to acknowledge, but now have to. Yeah. I guess I'd like to think of myself as an optimist. We probably all do. Um, and, and I, I am optimistic about, um, you know, and, and this reporting frankly made me more optimistic about like, the 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 resilience of of sort of the human spirit um, and 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 also about our capacity to care for one another when 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 we're forced to and um, you know I, I think uh, there's a lot of hope in that and and also we'll have to lean hard into it because there's going to be a lot of caretaking that's necessary as we move ahead but but certainly in terms of uh, our politics um, the massive problems that we have in this country with uh, disinformation conspiracy theories um, the fact that that I think fear and and division drives people more to those places uh, I think these are these are problems that are, are tragically still very much on the rise uh, in, in our country. And, and the pandemic exacerbates those things. Um, it, it, it gives people more reason to fear. They go more toward distrust um, and, and then more toward disinformation. So I think in terms of sort of what we have to do as a country to confront all of those things, I think our problems have gotten significantly larger. Eli Saslow is a Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post reporter. Uh, he has a new book out, uh, highly recommended, incredibly important, Voices from the Pandemic. Americans tell their stories of crisis, courage, and resilience. Uh, you can go on Amazon and order that, and obviously um, wherever you get your books. Uh, Eli, I appreciate your reporting, um, and I always have beyond this uh, beyond this subject, and um, and I hope you um, you continue to do it. It's it's not really easy work all the time to obviously uh, talk to people in pain and, and suffering, but it's really important that people hear and, and see these stories, particularly like you mentioned of, of, of people who don't have necessarily the economic means as, as others. So I appreciate just as a reader what you're doing and uh, 
And thank you so much for coming on today to the uh, Sports Media Podcast. I really appreciate appreciate that. And the truth is, like as as difficult as the work can sometimes be, um, it, it gives me so much more than it takes out of me because uh, you know because it, it feels like um, I get the immense privilege of doing work that that feels important to me. And and conversations like this reinforce that. So I'm I'm grateful to you always for your work and and your time too, Richard. Appreciate it. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Lisa Byington and Kate Scott and Eli Saslow for their time and conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed doing today's podcast. It was a lot of fun. So I thank those guys for their time. If um, if this kind of stuff interests you in terms of um, the subject matter of this podcast, head to our archives page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play and uh, check stuff out. And please leave a five-star review well some nice comments that's how the podcast stays the podcast prior to this one conrad thompson and jeff jarrett on the process of creating a successful podcast before that was ken burns the documentarian filmmaker before that gus johnson keep to leave the new team at fox sports those guys were fun before that kevin clark of the ringer and a sports media roundtable with kavita davidson and chad finn check out all the stuff on the archives uh, hopefully you will find something that uh, you'll enjoy as always, my thanks to Patrick Antonetti for producing this podcast. Thanks to everybody, Cadence 13. And thanks to you. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.